an increase in globalization and rapid advancement in technology, how do we keep up? What's the human impact? What's the risk? What's the national security risk? How do we ensure that policy can keep up with all of this? And how can we make sure that while we allow innovation to happen and growth to happen, uh, that we keep the human aspect at the center? Today, I'm joined by Kevin Cirilli. Kevin used to be the chief Washington, D.C. correspondent at Bloomberg, and he's currently the media fellow at Atlantic Council. He's traveled the world. He spent a lot of time with people, and he's embedded at that intersection of people, policy, and technology. These topics and more we explore with Kevin. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Kevin, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I feel like I haven't done this in a while, so I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> <laughs> no need to be nervous here. This is, this is low stakes uh, yeah. podcast here. That's what they all say. <laughs> but we are going to talk about high stakes problems. So I yeah. thought one of the conversations we could discuss is globalization. And one of the threads we could pull on that is supply chain to start. You know, I, since I'm as a technologist, I get pulled into conversations talking about how can technology help supply chain. But I'm a firm believer that technology doesn't drive progress. Problems drive progress. And only people changing or large groups of people changing um, really drive progress. You know, you're at the intersection. You're not only at the intersection of diplomacy and policy and technology, but you spent a lot of time with people you know, on the yeah. campaign trail and just observing them. So I'm curious, you know, some of your thoughts as far as how big are the problems facing globalization right now? What are some of the challenges with supply chain? Well, they're massive. But I also think that that means that there's massive opportunity. And so I remember, and you alluded to this, but I really kind of got my start as a print journalist. And that's what I studied when I, when I went to Penn State University. And as you mentioned, I was embedded on political campaigns, and in particular, uh, the 2016 Trump presidential campaign. And so I would travel all around the country. Like, I wouldn't even know where I was half the time. But I would, I would see up close and unfiltered uh, the American workforce. And just in the... I, I didn't really know it at the time, but I could sense that it was in the middle of a radical transfer, transformation. And all of the uh, globalization and all of the technology uh, and the different geopolitical uh, shifts that kind of feel like tectonic plates moving and reverberating mm. uh, in real time that perhaps uh, we don't always see because it's so disorienting sometimes, but I, I could sense it. And so as I developed my career, I really have always been interested in policy, whether it's financial services, but in particular trade policy. And to be blunt with you, the U.S.-China relationship is a lot more complicated than just soybeans and sorghum. <laughs> it's technology, it's semiconductor chips, and it's at the forefront not just of national security, but global security. So I really feel like I've been embedded on the digital frontier these last few months to really develop and learn and listen from the experts about the problems that we face, not just today, but the problems that we face, uh, not just in the United States, but from, from like-minded strategic partners in order to meet the future of where this is all headed. Yeah. And those problems can really sneak up on us. I feel like some of the challenges we face, I sometimes hear the people beating the drum of, globalization is bad. 
And I, I'm kind of of the thinking, it's not good or bad. It's just kind of, how are you leaning into yeah, it? Yeah, it's how a are new point. Managing? Yeah. I, I think that's such a great... I mean, I, I always would say when when I was covering politics, it doesn't matter if I'm a Republican or a Democrat. My job is to report the news. Well, it doesn't matter my position on globalization or the contours of nationalism versus globalization, but let's just look at the environment that we're in right now, and it's a global environment, and increasingly it's going to be out of this world, and I think that you're seeing that with so many uh, outer space exploration companies that are at the intersection of a public-private partnership. And so I think, again, to, to, to really hone in on those dynamics and to understand them uh, is something that not just Washington policymakers struggle with, but I think how all of these different worlds communicate, whether it's Washington with Silicon Valley or Silicon Valley with Beijing or the United States with our European allies, uh, all of that feedback loop and sometimes separate feedback loops, um, that's where I think uh, the future focus for uh for the conversations of the next, at least in my lifetime, are going to be centered. Yeah, and the challenge is there's, there are some executives that they're, because of their industry and their business, they're forced to think about policy. They're forced to think about the, the global impact. And, but there's others that are just so damn busy running their business, they can't really think about it. And they're just driving for efficiency. They're driving for the, the best bottom line they can possibly have. Um, but that is, that's where you run into problems with globalization because you're not looking forward into to where this is going to go. Um, you know, I, I've been digging more into to the, the concept of tech statecraft. And, uh, you know, for the audience, maybe, you know, if, can you talk about that? You know what that is a little bit? I feel like I feel like that's part of my job now is to be like the translator in chief for all of these <laughs> complicated. There's value in that. <laughs> well, hopefully, <laughs> um, you know, look, I think at, at a very simple level, um, uh, talking to a Bloomberg terminal audience, so to speak, uh, it, it's really the intersection of geopolitics and uh, global companies and technology uh, that's driving inclusive innovation for the future and advancing freedom on the digital frontier um, through an alliance-based approach and like-minded strategic partner-based approach. But from like a everyday person c communications, it's, I mean, I think we think, when people think of tech, they think of their they think of their smartwatch or they think of their, you know, their cell phone or the laptop that I'm on with you right now. Um, but it's not, you know, it's, it's 20,000 leagues under the sea where 90% of the world's interconnectivity on the internet is wrapped around in deep sea underwater cables. It's um, in massive internet servers that are hovering in the upper galaxy, uh, providing internet connectivity. It's deep underground in the desert uh, where semiconductor chips are being made and uh, engineers are uh, overseeing and manning robots. Um, and it's, it's all of those things. It's in giant servers in Iowa cornfields uh, that are housing mm -hmm. massive data centers. And so I think it's in innovation labs where they're literally, when we talk about autonomous vehicles, you know, think of the horse and buggy where, uh, where they would have tolls and how, how that was a source of revenue for the interstate highway systems. Well, now they're developing uh, highway systems that will actually, get this, be able to charge your vehicle when you're driving. The road will become your gas station, you know? And nice. so I think 
that's what tech diplomacy is. Um, it's, it's, again, preparing uh, like-minded nations to meet the future. And also getting ahead of these problems. You know, I look at the, the Huawei 5G situation, and it's scary how that could have really snuck up on us. And, and if we didn't It's totally react, scary. That's the right word for it. It's absolutely terrifying. 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 Yeah. Yeah, and it's like how many more of those things are out there that you you know people aren't thinking about that we need to kind of have our head on a swivel about, right? Well, I mean, I think back to when, and again, when I so after I covered um, the Trump campaign, and I started traveling, had the the privilege to travel around the world um, to cover uh, uh, policy uh, as as a Washington correspondent, and one of the places that I traveled to was Colombia uh, with former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And I remember going on a run in uh, Bogota and I was preparing for this interview. And that's how I always, you know, I'm going on my run and I'm looking around at all these stores. And George, I tell you, there are more Huawei stores than I've ever seen Apple stores here in Washington, D.C. And I was like, I, I, you know, and I I don't want to date myself, but when when I first started kind of getting into this world, I didn't even know how to pronounce Huawei. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let alone that did I understand the national security and global economic security um, challenges that it poses and risk that it poses uh, to the United States and, and our strategic partners. And so I think, you know, the difference I get, I, what I've been learning about through my fellowships is um, that the difference between here in the United States is that we uh, we value innovation, you know we value the mm-hmm. public-private partnership. Well, that doesn't exist under General Secretary Xi's Communist Party. That is, every company over there is the Communist Party, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so if you're interacting, uh, and don't take my word for it, I just interviewed uh, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, and he was explaining this to me, and, and I was asking him about this, and um, and I think. You know, it poses significant risk. So I think now what you're starting to see, George, is that CEOs uh, are are developing a China plan, and they're developing a, a risk China a China risk contingency plan because they want to be prepared. And if 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 you look at what happened with uh, Russia's aggression and Russia's war with the Ukraine, you're seeing uh, that companies have to be prepared uh, to take on that risk. Yeah, and it, the the bummer is that there's a lot of upside to them being able to operate as essentially just one organization. You know, if you, if you want to change your strategy, you can change it. You don't have to wrangle a a bunch of cats to, to make it happen. And, and, um, there's a lot of upside for who, what do you mean? For China, for, for, for them to be, since they, you know, they are essentially, you know, operating as one company, you know, they can, they can just really, um, make huge moves. Whereas here we're relying on, individual companies to to make their moves and and lean into that you know corporate responsibility is really becoming national security as that for sure i I wonder well we're going to start to see more consortiums and more you know you know groups stand up across these companies within the states to really you know do do this battle yeah and you know i think i think the one thing that america should be really proud of right and should that everyone can be proud of is is our innovation (laughs) i mean whether it's the light bulb or uh, walking on the moon. <laughs> I mean, our innovation has always kind of set us apart. It has set us apart, not kind of. I mean, it, it has set us apart. And so I think, uh, but it's, it's, I think now 
you have to be inclusive when you innovate. And I think that's going to be the challenge uh, because we have those values here in the United States. Our European allies share those values, but there are authoritarianism regimes that don't value that. And so we have to lead by example. And I think that's, you know, I, that's the message that I, when I put on my reporter hat, that's the message that I'm, I'm getting from uh, the C-suite, from the innovators, from the chief technology officers. And bluntly, I think space in particular has really sort of been out front of this, so to speak, in many ways, because you're seeing uh, various space companies, and then they're all in the headlines, uh, mm. <laughs> working with NASA, working with uh, the folks out in Pasadena, California. Um, and and I think that's been interesting to watch and something that I've been watching and monitoring closely. What are you most excited about that as far as the advancements and, and what's happening in space? Oh, I could talk about this. So I've always wanted to go to space. I put this out and I want to come back to. I've, I've started adding that. Um, you know, so much. I think when people look up at the sky, they see stars. They should also see jobs mm-hmm. um, because, you know, the supply chain, I think, increasingly uh, is is going to become between the U.S. and the moon. It'll be uh, you'll be able to uh, look at how different rare earth minerals um, and other uh, uh, properties of, of various uh, rare earth minerals transform when they're at certain levels in outer space and in different places. And so I think, um, you know, I think there's just so much potential um, and so much that the middle class and uh, working class Americans can be trained for uh, to innovate. And I think it's a it's it's a it's exciting, you know, and I think, uh, again, it's something that that folks should feel excited about. Yeah, I mean, we're now just at the point where we actually have a ship that can, in theory, take us to Mars, right? And, you know, the prospect of asteroid mining is really exciting when we talk about all the challenges and the conflict that occurs with rare earth minerals that we have have to get here. Um, And water. I uh, mean, look at the uh, water in particular and and being able to uh, have different water reserves and, and energy uh, propositions and so that we can value our planet from an environmental standpoint as well. Um, and so I, all of that should be inspiring, but space has to be inclusive. You know, it can't just be something that billionaires get to go to. It has to be, um, aspirational, but it, it shouldn't, no one should be outpriced. Um, and I think that's gotta be part of the conversation as well. What I get excited about is, um, is with all this advancement, like you said, there's there's more jobs. I, I get in so many conversations where there's this concern of automation. And I know we, you and I talked about this a little bit before, that it's going to get rid of all the jobs. But with, with each new advancement, they, first of all, I think that takes way slower than everyone thinks. And second of all, I think with each new advancement, there's so many more jobs and opportunities that come up. Well, I mean, this is what I would say. What is it, the Gutenberg Bible? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I mean... I think that might have put some uh, some scribes out of out of work, but it also created other jobs for printers and printing presses. And so I think when you look at it from a historical analysis, you know, and I'll put on my Doris Kearns Goodwin cap, who I love. Uh, historically speaking, innovation has when 
when the mission of innovation has been to be both inclusive and to innovate, America has found success. When the mission has just been to make a buck, well, you might make a few billion, but then your bottom line has other repercussions that, that are hurtful that to, to the, the larger environment. Um, and so I think if the rate of innovation for transforming the American workforce can keep up with the technology innovation of automation and other uh, technology that we've seen emerge, that has to be in balance. So you mm. can have the best technology in the world, but if you're not training the workforce for it, then of course you're going to leave so many people behind and that just, that can't happen. Um, so the conversation has to be in balance, but it shouldn't be something that pe- people shouldn't fear innovation when the mission, when it's mission focused and, and coming from a place of, again, inclusive, inclusivity and innovation. Yeah. I mean, cause technology is supposed to help humans. Yeah. I feel like it's such an obvious thing, but I feel that we all forget it. So, so, so often, um, I'm curious though, like when you say inclusivity and innovation, uh, I'm curious for you to expand a little bit more on, on what that means. It means that, that the, that the, I mean, it means that the jobs have to be able to be pitched to everyone. And mm. so if our education system is flawed, if our education system at every level, you know, when I was a kid, I'd watch Bill Nye, the science guy. I mean, that guy told me about all these different jobs that I had no idea that you could, that you could apply for. But if the education system is not training folks, if we're training people to make cars with motors, when we should be training people to make cars that are autonomous vehicles or the chips in our phone or going to space, as you mentioned, to mine, that has to keep up. Um, Otherwise, the, the, the workforce is going to miss out. I mean, to your point, I'll never forget. It's part of my fellowship. They put me in Arizona. I love Arizona. It was hot as, can I, can I say it was hot as hell? It was, you sure can. Cause it it was, I bet it was, it was genuinely hot as hell. And they, they put it's me a dry on. heat. It doesn't, that's nonsense. It's, it's such, I nonsense. love Arizona. By the way, I love <laughs> Arizona. It's one of my, it's genuinely my second favorite state in the union after my home state of Pennsylvania, great commonwealth. Um, but I, they put us out there and I like, they put us on like a bus and like you're in the, in the middle of, you're genuinely in the middle of nowhere desert. No clue where I am. I go deep underground. They put me in like a, I love Lucy white chocolate suit thing where she's in the factory, you know, the hairnet, the gloves, the massive goggles. I mean, it was really remarkable all to keep dust particles out. That was the intention is so that they were building semiconductor chips uh, deep underground and no particle of dust could get in it because if it touches the chip, then it screws up your technology. So, mm-hmm. but what I learned was two things. First and foremost, there were engineers there. You know, I come from a family of engineers. My dad's an engineer. I have a sister who's an engineer. And they were legit manning the robots. Like I felt like I was in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids almost because there were these massive robots that were developing all of these semiconductor chips and um, there were folks monitoring them. And I'm like, these are high-tech jobs. These are high-tech manufacturing jobs. I didn't know these jobs existed. And then the second point that I would raise is that you can't look at the chip issue and not feel that chips are the new oil. Because they are. 
I mean, the demand for chips, even in my lifetime, I'm 32. In my lifetime, it, it hasn't gone like a gradual hill. It's like a vertical line of demand. Yeah. Because there's like, what, five or six chips in a smartphone? There's a couple hundred in my laptop, a couple more hundred in my Peloton, a couple thousand in an airplane, a couple multiple thousand in a Musk space rocket. <laughs> and so, you know, that is, I think, without question, one of the most important uh, defining high-tech issues of our time. And it presents so many challenges. Um, and I think the public really needs communicators who can get out there and explain it in a very simple way um, and also in an optimistic way so that people understand what's at stake. Yeah, it just makes it that much more important for us to be investing in the education systems to stay on top of these things. Um, you know, I, I remember, you know, even me when I was back in, in high school getting that list of jobs that you could do and Nowhere on there was hedge fund manager, by the way. I wish someone had told me that that was a possibility. But, you know. Well, the hedge fund guys, they, they didn't want it on the list. <laughs> but the job I've been doing for the last 20 years certainly wasn't on it. You know, like digital no, strategy just wasn't even on there. And, and that wasn't that long ago. And, and so it's, it's a challenge to keep on top of it. And so we see, like, the, you know, the top companies that are, you know, I see them investing in tech statecraft as well as education and they have their own outreach programs but where i get excited is around that middle market you know the the lifeblood of the country because these yeah. this is you know they're they're companies all over you know i'm sure you encountered a ton of them when you were on the campaign trail um and i wonder you know do you have any thoughts on how they're like do they need to step step into tech statecraft like do they piggyback off of what the big guys are doing or create their own consortiums you know how are they going to step into this well, I think well, I think that's where the intersection of, of the public and the private really becomes fascinating because especially from a security standpoint and the systems and the, the networks that are backing a lot of these platforms, whether they're small businesses or medium sized or medium to large sized companies, they need that trust that not just for their consumers, which they also need to build trust with, but also for themselves that that the dad that the 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 uh, service the goods and the products that they're developing that they can trust that it's not going to collapse on them or it's not going to be exposed to hostile foreign actors you know and quite honestly we've seen how news media platforms have really struggled with that you know we've seen mm. it in the financial sector we've seen it in the education sector we've seen it in the um, uh, health sector with hospitals but in the media sector, we've seen it as well. When hostile foreign actors are able to penetrate into a system um, and graffiti all over it with disinformation or misinformation, uh, that can be incredibly problematic. So um, I, I would just say that the government uh, is going to have to be able to find a way to support um, those companies uh, and in order to maintain that trust for for their products. And we've seen that in, in historically over time to be developed. Yeah, the federal government's going to need to give them a, a better toolbox to be able to, to compete in, in that world, right? You know, I remember one of the first data breaches that I covered was the Target data breach. This was mm. years ago. And uh, I was at Politico at the time. And um, 
uh, when it when it came out, I was covering the policymakers' response, and it was fascinating because it seemed like at that time there had been a hack every day. You know, I remember like the Sony hack and all these hacks, um, and they would end up on the front page of every newspaper. They'd go viral, and and there was a real from a shareholder perspective, a real reputational risk for companies to report that they had been hacked because Mm -hmm. their stocks would take a hit when it was reported and when when it was made public. And so what I've noticed over the last few years is that the government has had to be like, no, we we have to encourage reporting so that we can understand where these attacks are happening because it's not the foreign adversaries aren't just attacking government anymore. They're also attacked. We're under economic attack. You know, there's economic warcraft, so to speak, that occurs. Um, and companies have to be prepared for it, but you can't expect a small business in Des Moines or Delco, where I grew up to be able to fend off Vladimir Putin from a, (laughs) you know what I mean? I mean, I mean, you, so how do you, so provide that support is definitely a, a conversation that's worthy of being had. And it's needed. You know, I have, and I don't mean, who, I, by the way, there are a lot of guys in Delco who could take on uh, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't yeah. doubt it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've even had friends of mine that they used to do cybersecurity at a federal level. They're now out there consulting to those companies because those companies essentially have to have the same security as a sovereign nation. Right. Which is just yet again, why that like te- that tech statecraft needs to be, part sure. of all of these companies strategies and um because they they it's not just social social impact it's national security and i know those companies they really care about their country right they care about their people and they want to do it they just need to you know some of them are you know third generation family businesses they just don't have the resources to be able to, to step but we've into done those. it before and i think and that's i totally agree with you and i think you're spot on and but we've done it before, right? I mean, even look at currency. You mm-hmm. know, um, a lot of folks my age never carry cash. Uh, you can pay with your smartwatch now. And um, and companies and small businesses, when, when credit cards were introduced and all of these different payment platforms, they all had to adjust and be nimble and be out front and be forward focusing. It's just providing access to information and education. Uh, we talked about education of, of young people and higher education services, but also just folks keeping up with transformation. Transformation education is, is I think, something that, that, is, that, that has to be included in this uh, as well. I love the optimism there, and I, I love looking back at, at prior patterns. I mean, to the jobs thing, look at every industrial revolution, you know, the jobs are still there. You know, after each transformation, we've been able to get through it. So there's, there's some real problems and some real challenges out there, but we've done it and we can do it again. We just got to keep our, our eye on the, the right things and keep our foot on the pedal in the right direction. Yeah. And, and I would just add, uh, I, I think another, everyone's talking about web three, right? Um, mm-hmm. and so I was just at a dinner, uh, in a cafe Milano in Georgetown. And, um, uh, brag, you know, there were some, is that a, bra- I, I mean, I love Franco. <laughs> it's a shout out. I wouldn't say it was bra- <laughs> uh, the great pizza though, by the way. Um, nice. and, uh, but one of my friends from the state department was there and it was fascinating to, to hear their perspective on how there doesn't seem to be any, news source or media source out there 
that's really specifically covering this. Mm. Um, and it feels almost alarming because it's what everyone is talking about in these circles. Like the conversation that you and I are having is tech statecraft, is tech diplomacy. And understanding that and again, finding that balance. Uh, and so it's... I, I almost, and I asked point blank, I'm like, well, where do you get your information? I mean, obviously they get their internals, but where do you get, like, you know, a politician knows there's a million different things they can read or a foreign policy can, you know, there's a million different things you can read. But to really find out what's going on on the digital frontier, like, what do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to? Um, And so I think you're going to notice, I would predict that there will be more platforms, there will be more outlets that, that start to cover this in a in a smarter, more uh, everyday approach way. Mm. Yeah, it is a lot of peer groups and a lot of you know conversations over dinner. But you heard it here, folks. Kevin and I are going to be launching the Tech Statecraft News Media <laughs> Network. No one else can steal the idea. Janet, is that what this is? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, the more the merrier. It. Competition's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's a great point to end on is, is, is this conversation, it needs to be elevated more and more um, because the more we discuss it, the more it'll just embed itself into all of these organizations and society. Totally. totally. So, Kevin, one thing I love to finish on is um, throughout all of your experience and interactions, what's the best advice you've ever received? Be yourself, um, which is the hardest advice, but, uh, is really simple as well. You have to be yourself because if you're mm. not yourself and you try to be someone that you're not, um, it will always, it'll just make you miserable. But also I, I think if you're in a communications role, the audience, whoever you're communicating with will see right through it immediately. If you try to, if you try to do the whole, like, I don't know, if you try to do the whole robot thing or the whole, I don't know. You just gotta, you just gotta be yourself. And, um, I think it's, it, it's funny because the person who gave me this advice, uh, was just like a media booker like 10 years ago in DC. And I was going on TV for like one of the first times ever. I was so nervous. First of all, I looked like I was 12 and, <laughs> <laughs> and I was so nervous. And, uh, and she just looked at me and she's like, be yourself, be yourself, be yourself. And then I would say the second best advice I ever got was from one of my favorite teachers, uh, my English teacher, uh, who told me to keep my chin up. Nice. Well, I only asked for one, so I'm going to edit out yeah. the second one. All no. right. They're both, Sorry, Mr. They're Roper. Both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Mr. Roper. We'll keep it in. I think they're both great. You got to keep in Mr. Roper. Yeah. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. Wonderful. Kevin, thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on the success of your podcast. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.